0: Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our communications coordinator, Melissa Roach, is joined by Nick Montgomery, a writer, theory nerd, permaculturalist, co-author of Joyful Militancy, Building Thriving Resistance in Toxic Times, and co-creator, Solidary Housing, a new project that supports homeowners in transitioning their homes to becoming permanently affordable housing. I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Welcome to the show, Nick. I'm very happy that you're able to join us today, and I've uh, long wanted to talk to you, uh, just knowing of your work through our mutual friend and uh, a friend of the pod, Carla Bergman, who's actually been on Below the Radar to speak about Joyful Militancy, uh, which is really fantastic. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, But I'm excited to speak to you about a project that's about to launch, and I don't know a whole lot about, but I'm very excited to hear about Solidarity Housing. But yeah, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about yourself for uh, people who don't know you and a bit of an intro to the project and also where you're calling in from, that would be great. I'm on... um, Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh lands in what's known as Vancouver and that's where I'm coming from today.
2: Cool yeah thanks for having me yeah so my name's Nick Montgomery and I'm calling today from Comox, Pentlatch and um, Qualicum lands and that's H or Denman Island and I've lived here for a couple of years now and before then I lived on Lekwungen Territory uh, in Victoria for about a decade. Um, yeah, and I don't exactly know how to say what I do or what I am, but I wrote a book with Carla, like you mentioned, and I'm a gardener and permaculturalist, and uh, I teach at universities sometimes. Um, yeah, that's me. And thanks for having Fantastic.
1: me. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. If you're ready to jump into Solidarity Housing and speak a bit about what conversations led to it and if there was a spark for the idea and give us a bit of a background about it, that would be fantastic.
2: Sure. Yeah. I guess there's probably a few things that sparked it, but it's definitely been a slow build. And I guess one piece of context is that I've lived in collective houses for the last probably 15 years and the same with most of my friends and we've always rented. And that process of sharing things has made it possible for a lot of us to live, you know, weirder, more interesting, more alternative lives because you don't have to work 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week to pay rent. For a lot of us that also meant being organized in events and making art and spending time with kids and doing community organizing so in some ways it was really great but it has always also been unstable so there's a constant threat of getting evicted and with this project we're calling that structural precarity that kind of sense that maybe even if you have a good living situation right now you're always kind of facing down the threat of rent eviction in that time i've seen a lot of collectives and families being pushed out of victoria and vancouver over the last decade and sometimes people would struggle to find a rental even if they found one it would be smaller and more expensive and then at other times they would just have to leave the city and so I've seen a lot of friends move north or to another province um, and as you know Carla, the co-founder of Solidarity Housing ended up in similar conversations with youth in Vancouver and so like when you talk to young people about what do you need to thrive, stable housing is always at the top of the list. And I think it was impossible to see for a lot of people, how how can you have a thriving life, you know, making art and being part of a community when you're putting most of your paycheck into rent and the place you're renting might not even be around next year. Since those conversations started, a lot of things have gotten worse. So, you know, housing prices have doubled Rent has gone up. There's even more incentive for landlords to renovate and sell their homes. Carla and her family have been forced to move twice since the pandemic began. I live on Denman Island now, and the situation is quite similar. So housing prices have skyrocketed and it's really difficult to find any rental housing. The only way that we found a rental was through kind of networks of friendship. I guess you know I'm saying all that as context, but that context is probably pretty obvious to anyone listening to this that there's a desperate need for stable, affordable housing. And I guess the more particular context is a few years ago, a bunch of us who were living collectively, we kind of sat down and did some math and realized that if we did have a, if we did buy this house and and somehow got a mortgage that monthly mortgage payment would be about the same as rent. And so that kind of got us thinking, well, like, well, what if, why are we paying off landlord's mortgage? Like, what if we could do it ourselves? And so no bank would lend to a bunch of low income people working in unstable jobs. But it did get us thinking that, you know, rent is usually just paying down somebody else's mortgage. So how could we create some sort of alternative that's more stable where we know as the residents we're not going to get evicted and where monthly payments just don't don't just go to a private landlord
1: yeah it's it's something that hangs over your head as a tenant for sure the Mm -hmm. the possibility of eviction and um like you're talking about the the mortgage, the huge down payment—it just highlights the the inequality of the huge gap. And through things like uh, intergenerational wealth and land theft, that have just exacerbated it and made this huge barrier to entry for security and housing. For sure. Yeah. yeah so, what shape will solidary housing take, and what what kind of model are you are you looking at right now?
2: Well, I guess the the basic idea is that. It's a transaction mechanism that enables homeowners to transition their house to nonprofit ownership while receiving monthly payments. I'm still kind of learning how to talk about this in a non technical way, and I'm not a technical housing person, um, but it's basically trying to recognize that a lot of homeowners might actually be interested in sharing some of what they have, but for a lot of them, Their house is their nest egg and maybe their only asset. So they have kind of put all their money into their house. Maybe they're struggling to make mortgage payments, or maybe they paid off their mortgage. But even if they have, the only money that they have is tied up in their house. So they can't just give their house away. But if they could maybe receive monthly payments, then they could share the house or downsize to a smaller place. So kind of like what landlords do, except... Um, instead of being a landlord, ownership of the house actually transitions to a nonprofit. new people move in, and the new residents lease or rent the space. And so some of that money goes to the former homeowner to support their living expenses, and then some of it goes into a fund to support repairs and stuff like that. So in financial speak, uh, it's often a, a way that helps people understand it is it's kind of like a non version of a reverse mortgage or a vendor take back mortgage so the homeowner gets in a sense the homeowner is lending a land trust the money to buy the house from them but the payments will probably end up being less than they would get if they did a private reverse mortgage so they get these monthly payments instead of a lump sum the land trust becomes the new owner, new residents pay the payments. And then the land trust has a mandate to provide permanently affordable housing. So the thing that we are excited about in part is that it's a way for homeowners to kind of end this cycle of speculation and accumulation. It's not going to get sold ever again. No one's going to be evicted, and no one's going to get rich off of it either.
1: Yeah, it's it's systematically taking it out of the market it's it's incredible like how many potential solutions there are when you apply imagination and creativity to the housing crisis that really like needs no introduction uh, where where we are and where you are i wanted to ask you bringing it back to joyful militancy because you're talking about one of the things that especially youth have said that they need to thrive and i think everyone needs to thrive is a secure home and thinking about joyful militancy and making the connection between thriving and resistance as something that you have thought a lot about and written a lot about. How do you see the resistance piece and the connection between thriving and resistance show up in solidarity housing and and the the principles that you're working with?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think part of it is that a lot of the values that we talked about, in the book like trust and responsibility care curiosity creativity those are really difficult to embody when you're worrying about where you're going to live next month and so part of what we're talking about in this project is structural precarity makes it so that people are constantly stressed and fearful and that also makes it impossible to put down roots in a place if you're not sure if you'll be there in a few months or a year so yeah, solidarity housing came out of wanting to create I guess create the conditions for people to feel like their living situation is stable so that we all have more capacity to even ask what a thriving life looks like. And for me personally, it also came out of wanting to provide a more stable container for collective houses that I have seen Act as real nodes in networks of resistance and community organizing and just living differently. And so I think in a lot of places, these collective houses are often a real backbone of radical communities. They're, you know, a place for people to experiment with radical alternative ways of living. They're a way to communalize a lot of life and share dishes and food and tools. They're a real hub often for people to gather and organize and share food and have meetings and renovation often just shatters them so people move elsewhere and often aren't able to kind of recreate the hub in the same city and so that particular hub or node is just gone and so I'm hoping that this model will help create some stability for those hubs so that when people do create a collective house and it is really thriving, it's not going to get destroyed by run or by the landlord deciding that they don't want those people living there anymore.
1: Yeah, because the kind of housing that it takes to house a collective is, you know, a detached home and maybe it's older so people can afford it and it's really like prime for redevelopment or for for profit
0: Mm -hmm. so
1: yeah it's cool it's it's cycle breaking stuff
2: yeah well and it's also so prime for weirdos to fix it up themselves and add on things and you know put solar panels on and do gray water and but none of that stuff you can do as a tenant so that there is Yeah, it's like you say, it's it's prime for yuppification, but it's also prime for people doing really interesting things if it can be gotten away from private market. Yeah,
1: Um, I I like that you talked about food, too, because that's one thing I think about in my, you know, um, one bedroom rental life is uh, not having outdoor space or having a garden where you can do things like grow your own food and like you said, have have kind of alternate ways of being and sustaining yourself that's just an aside where my head went yeah the other thing I wanted to ask you was about the solidarity and solidarity housing and uh, maybe this is my like renter's bias but my I was wondering like how how do you frame the solidarity piece to homeowners not saying that there are renters who also just like get it but (laughs) Yeah. How do you explain the solidarity piece or um, pitch it to people who could potentially participate and uh, transfer ownership of their home?
2: Yeah, great question. And I I think, I mean, to be honest, it's something that we're still figuring out and learning about. And I'm sure it'll change as we have new conversations with homeowners. But for now, we're trying to keep it pretty simple. And the definition of solidarity that we have on the website is that acting in solidarity just means supporting others because we have a stake in their thriving. So I'm supporting you, not because I'm just a good person or because you're in desperate need, but it's because I actually want to see you do well, because I see how that will support the kind of worlds that I want to be in. Like I actually have a stake in you doing well. And so I think What we're hoping that does when we talk to homeowners about it is that we're speaking to something that a lot of them are already looking for and kind of trying to trust that homeowners, some homeowners actually want to be in solidarity with people facing housing precarity, but there aren't a lot of tools and with housing and property in particular, there's a lot of shame and guilt and fear and, you know, people are, angry that homeowners have these huge assets and middle-class people and homeowners are trained to not talk about what they have so it's a you know it's a private thing it's something you don't talk about um and so part of what we're doing is trying to find ways to have different kinds of conversations that aren't kind of telling homeowners they're bad for owning a home but thinking about it as an opportunity, like, okay, you have this wealth, it's stolen land, you know, you don't deserve to have it, no one deserves to have it. And there's an opportunity to kind of leverage it in ways that create permanent affordability, instead of private wealth. And so there's a way to change the way that private property works to create an alternative. So I think ultimately, we're not hopefully not trying to kind of sell homeowners on on this idea instead we want to find people to connect with who are kind of excited about the idea and see its potential uh, because they're actually already looking for a way to do solidarity but the tools haven't been there to actually support them because there just aren't a lot of tools to to do this right now
1: yeah yeah for sure one thing that i've heard you say before in another talk is that um one hope is that solidarity housing as a framework as a model could potentially serve other communities beyond kind of the initial project that you're doing that's you know place based here. So I'm wondering how how do you see that model potentially being taken up by other communities? And I mean, maybe there are places where it wouldn't work or would work really well, but how do you how do you see it potentially uh, feeding other? other places other communities
2: yeah i think i mean i think we're going to find out as we go but we're working to create resources and materials that are open source and hopefully readily adapted to other communities so a lot of this model is part of what makes it difficult is just because it's really time consuming and expensive to create a bunch of legal and financial tools. Like you need lawyers and accountants and consultants. And so part of what we want to do is when, once we have these contracts and lease agreements and rental agreements, offer them as kind of examples and templates of all that stuff so that anyone can use it and adapt it to their own context in their own, places and then the other piece is clarifying how the process of transition actually works so how do you get from you know homeowner thinks this is a cool idea to homeowner actually signs an agreement that transitions ownership of their property to a land trust what are the stages in that who's involved at what stage and we have an idea of that now but it's going to become a lot clearer when we undertake some pilot projects. And then we're hoping to share that too and say, you know, this is what we did. This is what we would do differently. This is a thing to watch out for. So yeah, I think we are really hoping that it is a model that's taken up by other communities. And we, like I've had conversations with people in other cities who are excited about it. And so it's possible that we could end up doing this in parallel too. Like maybe people will be excited enough to try it and find some homeowners who are interested and there could be pilots in other places if people have the capacity for that.
1: Yeah, that would be really cool. I'm thinking back to the piece you said about looking for people who own their home that are already searching for ways to be in solidarity and to maybe not explicitly uh, give back the land is in their mind. But thinking about mutual aid, because when you read Joyful Militancy, like mutual aid is like a, a heartbeat throughout it. Right. And I, you know, I'm buds with Carla and we, we talk about mutual aid all day. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what, what would you say to people who are kind of newer to the idea of mutual aid? And like like we've said, like it's something that is inherent to us. Like we, we know that we need to be in community with people and humans thrive in cooperation. But um, people who maybe aren't used to practicing it intentionally in their community or even with strangers like are there, are there any things that you would say to people who are in that zone
2: yeah i mean i I got excited about mutual aid as part of this kind of big picture of you know I think it's at the core of the kind of transformation that we need, and it's constantly being crushed by the market and by institutions and It gives people the confidence that we can be okay if we get hurt or we don't have a job or we need help. And I've I've believed that and tried to practice about it and been excited about it for a long time. And I think lately, one thing I've been thinking about is how it's, you know, beyond the big picture political stuff, it's also just like a pretty wonderful way to meet people, especially in the context of the pandemic where. social situations are difficult. And so, like I said, I live on Devon Island, and there is a really incredible social fabric here. So people are helping each other out and fixing each other's stuff and sharing food and tools. And getting involved in those networks has been a just a great way to connect with people. And personally, I can be pretty awkward and anxious in a lot of kind of more normal social situations, So I'm not always very good at like small talk and I can feel a bit aimless at parties and stuff. Like, I just don't, I don't know what to do. Oh, should I go talk to that person? I don't know. Maybe they're busy. Eh. Um, But one of the wonderful (laughs) things of, yeah, one of the wonderful things about connecting with people through mutual aid is because we're doing something together, you know, we're like planting or lifting something or carrying something or weeding or building, then for me, it creates a sense of ease and connection that's often missing in social spaces. And yeah, so I think that's part of what I'm excited about it, about mutual aid. And I think, you know, as the pandemic is hopefully waning, there's going to be more opportunity for People to get together. And I think, yeah, m- mutual aid has this kind of special thing about it where there's a real materiality to it that we're, because we're doing something, I think it alleviates a lot of the anxiety or social tension that's often there.
1: Yeah. I'm just thinking about like how I find a lot of my closest friends are friends that I collaborate with on projects or have met through work. And it's the shared task, the common goal that makes it easier to to bond with people and get to know people because I'm with you I'm also uh, you know kind of awkward and the reopening has sent my heart a flutter <laughs> but yeah as as someone who like, like you said you you teach sometimes you're you're in institutions sometimes and like being housed at SFU I mean I, I imagine that we have students who listen to our podcast. I hope they're out there listening. And one question that we often ask is like, if people have things they want to impart to young people. But because of your connection to the Purple Thistle Institute, I wanted to ask you if there are things that you've like, like what have you learned from your students and from young people about being in solidarity and mutual aid and how? How, how have those experiences informed your work as an, an organizer and a, hmm. a, a teacher?
2: Yeah, good question. I think, I mean, I, I guess I hadn't thought too much about students and it makes me think about during the pandemic, I got to design a course that was based on ungrading and basically the philosophy that like we shouldn't be grading students and not just that we shouldn't be grading them, but the whole apparatus of like evaluating students and that we're the people who know what good work is and they're the kind of receptacles for us to train into good workers has to be gotten rid of. And it's really like a Pandora's box, I think, of like a lot of instructors, myself included, would say, like, oh, you know, we don't we don't want to grade, but we have to. And so we're just in this system. Yeah, I guess designing that course has forced me to kind of grapple with how brutal um, grading is. And I think uh, has made me want to show up better for students in terms of the assignments and marking and thinking through how can I not, how can I minimize the like grades in general? and minimize the kind of anxiety and and oppositional stuff and all just all the weird dynamics that come up around grading so that students can you know be more in charge of their own learning process and actually be guided by their curiosity rather than anxiety that they need a certain grade and i guess one of the things that i've learned from younger kids because I've I lived for a long time with a couple of young kids at a collective house and my partner is running a summer camp right now and all that has got me thinking about how I I think part of solidarity with younger kids is relearning how to play and I really had to do that to be able to hang out with the kids that I lived with was like realizing that I had kind of had play smushed out of me and they just didn't really want to hang out with adults who didn't know how to play and I remember talking with them a few years ago and we had this conversation where they said like you know adults are always talking about how they work so hard and blah blah and kids have it easy because they just get to play and they were like no playing is actually really hard and I (laughs) I just thought it was a really cool insight that stuck with me that, you know, play might be fun, but it's also this really challenging thing and it's immersive and exhausting and big feelings come up and people get hurt sometimes and it's creative and it can be quite a serious activity. And I guess from my adult perspective, it really unsettled any idea that I had of kind of like childcare where you're just providing this service where instead playing with kids is this like when you're really deeply playing, it's entering their world. And it means it I think it's solidarity in the same sense. You're supporting them. Um but I am also kind of challenging myself to be more present and alive and creative. And they're gonna know if I'm not really playing, if I if I'm not there. So yeah, I've I have been partly probably because like summer camp is going on right now and I'm getting lots of stories about kids playing and and thinking a lot about play
1: oh that's cool I love that yeah and um, thinking back about the kind of housing situations and living situations that facilitate that kind of intergenerational relationship building and an exchange of like learning from each other yeah it's something that um, I mean it's also kind of like a, a a Western thing, too, that you don't live with your your parents and things, right, and you're very like siloed, so thinking about the alternatives that are possible with housing more affordable and sheltered from uh, the volatility of the market is uh, it makes me happy It makes me hopeful. <laughs>
2: cool yeah
1: one other thing is how how can people get involved with solidarity housing if they're interested where Where can people go to find you? And I think you said, you mean, you're not quite totally launched yet. And we'll, you know, put things in the show notes and wait until they're good to go. But in general, uh, for people who are interested, how can they get involved?
2: Yeah, well, we are going to have a website that is hopefully up by the time the show launches. And that's SolidarityHousing.com. And we're hoping that that will be a place for people to kind of encounter the idea and we're going to have some frequently asked questions and try to explain it in clear terms and connect it to our values. And then I guess if, you know, if people listen to this podcast or they go to the website and it really resonates with them, I think the biggest thing that we're hoping is for people to start having conversations. And so, I mean, the whole model in a way, it really just depends on homeowners being inspired to participate and the first step in that i think is a conversation and probably a series of conversations and so i'm anticipating that a lot of homeowners will come to this through conversations with people they really trust and care about already it's going to be you know people talking with their parents or their neighbors or their landlords and so i think yeah if if people are inspired about this finding ways to to talk with homeowners and be like hey is, do you think this is something that you could be interested in the other piece is that we're hoping to get a better understanding of what homeowners in general think about the model. And so we put a survey up on our website and would love if people can share that with homeowners that they know. We would also love to have help with some of the kind of nitty gritty stuff. And so we are on the lookout for folks who might be willing to contribute legal and financial services pro bono to help the project. And so definitely get in touch if you are someone who might want to volunteer some time with us in terms of accounting or legal stuff. And then there's, you know, the normal stuff. There's a way for people to spread the word and donate to the project on the website. And that obviously helps us move the project forward. And that's that'll be used for staff costs and yeah, to kind of make the project go and hopefully run a few pilot projects.
1: Yeah, great, great. Uh, Nick, is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I really appreciate you having me on and it's fun to talk about this project. It's still something, as people can probably tell, it's still something I'm learning to talk about and it'll change as we have more conversations. But yeah, I am excited about it and excited to be launching.
1: Yeah, I'm excited too, and we'll make sure to include all the details in the show notes so people know where to find you and how to learn more. Thank you so much for joining me on Below the Radar, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Melissa.
0: Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Nick Montgomery. This interview was conducted in August and Solidary Housing has since launched. You can find links to Solidary Housing and to Nick's other work in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.